I trust that you all went to bed very early last night so that you're well rested for this session so you can stay awake for the entire two hours that I'm about to speak. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, good morning again. And um, it's a great reminder as we're singing these songs, these songs have rich theology. Just thinking thinking about the, the last one we sang. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. I was once your enemy, but now I'm seated at your table. Like, do you think about these things that we're singing? Like, these are great truths. This whole weekend, what we've been learning about is just seeing the glory of Jesus and delighting in this Jesus so that we can grow in this Jesus. He's great. And so we don't ever, as I mentioned, I think the first night, grow out of these things. We just grow deeper into them. And it really pours out and greater worship, greater obedience toward the Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to sing about these things, to be with God's people and talk about these things, and to hear from it from God's word, which we're going to do this, this morning. And as we looked at yesterday, the Lord instructs us to abide in him, and he in us. And if you remember, he compares his abiding, that abiding, with his words abiding in us, Right? How essential it is for God's word to be abiding, to be dwelling within us richly. In modern Christianity, there's a focus of my own personal walk with the Lord. Like I have my own relationship. That Yes, I do have a relationship with the Lord. It's my relationship. Now, in a sense, you do need to have your own relationship, walk with the Lord. I can't walk with the Lord for you, or I can't walk with the Lord for you. Your parents can't walk with the Lord for you. It is really your personal walk with the Lord. But that's not what's meant oftentimes when people use that terminology. Because what are they really saying when they're saying, like, yes, I have my own personal walk with the Lord? They're really kind of putting themselves on their own plane and removing themselves from any accountability because they're essentially saying, I'm going to live my life how I want to live, and the Lord knows my heart. And what's dangerous about that is that kind of terminology, that thinking that is not a small sect of people. This is pretty big in American Christianity is this idea is just it's devoid of the word of God. That this, in other words, saying that this is my personal walk is another way of saying that I can do what I want devoid of any word and any objective truth in my life. You know what I mean when I say that? This is very common. And when you get down that road, what you're essentially saying is that I'm my own authority. And the true believer has no right to essentially say or claim that. Because what Christ is saying, and we're going to see more tonight, is he's saying how his word is so precious. But it's not only precious in the sense that we should just say it's precious. But we should also live like it's precious, enjoy it so that it works in us and works out of us. Because you can't have Christ without his word. Okay, you can't have Christ without his word. The way we supremely enjoy Christ is through the means of his word, which flows out in prayer and rejoicing and so forth. But it really begins there, the means through the word of God. That it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces going in, it pierces coming out. That God uses his word to do his finest work in his children. And so we don't want to neglect that. Because how else has Christ revealed himself to us? I mean, the word tells me about my Savior. And because it's the God-breathed word, it's his word. So if the Lord Jesus Christ himself likened abiding in him to having his word abide in us, I think we'd be fools to neglect the very discipline of taking in the word, right? If he said himself, my words abiding you, and we neglect to have his words abide in us and all that really entails, we would be fools to try to live the Christian life neglecting the very means he's gifted to his church. What we're going to look at this morning is the discipline of meditation, biblical meditation, Before we go further, I want to pray and ask the Lord's help on our time now. So would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we come before you again. And we are humbled when we think about the grand truths of the gospel, of what you have done in sending your son for us. And Lord, we realize if we're honest with our souls, that these truths that are so precious and dear to us, that you have saved us with, At times, our hearts grow cold toward them. 
that we waver in faith. We waver in our, our, in our zeal towards you. And it's nothing but your spirit that abides in us, that quickens us. It's nothing but your work in us that secures us and keeps us abiding in you. So, Lord, we are so thankful that you keep us, that you keep your children. And we're so thankful you left us not without your word. And you left us with a comforter, your spirit. So, God, I pray that this morning as we think about what it really means to meditate on your word, that you would work that into us in a way that actually produces fruit, the fruit that only you can do in us. So, Father, I ask for your help in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Christ, name we pray. Amen. Biblical meditation has, has lost its place in, in recent Christian teachings. In fact, the Puritans considered meditation the supreme means of grace. The supreme means of grace. Thomas Watson, he said that the reason we come away so cold from reading the word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fires of meditation. The reason why we can read the word and still come away like, I just feel still cold in my heart, is he's saying here, we have not warmed our souls at the fires of meditation. There are many wrong understandings of meditation, because immediately, when you hear the term meditation, and especially in today's world, what do you think that entails? Meditation is obviously like the idea of emptying your mind, right? That you need to empty and clear your mind, clear your space, clean your, is it clear, clear your chi? I don't know, I forget what it is. But you got you to empty yourself, empty your mind, empty your thinking, right? Be empty, because in that space, that's where the purity is found. Just empty yourself of all that. That's not what I'm talking about when I say meditation or biblical meditation. I'm not speaking about emptying your mind, but in fact, I'm speaking about the very opposite, filling your mind, filling your soul. And so I want to look at four aspects of meditation I think will help us to really implement this crucial discipline for the Christian himself or herself. Four aspects of meditation. The first one we're going to look at is the meaning of meditation. The meaning of meditation. What are we talking about when we say this? David Saxton, he he defines meditation as this, that it means to think personally, practically, seriously, earnestly on how the truth of God's word should look in life. It means to think personally, practically, seriously, earnestly on how the truth of God's word should look in life. One illustration I use all the time, and I probably views it here, I don't know, at one of the camps here. But one illustration I've always used about what it means to meditate is the picture of a cow, right? A cow chews the cud. And when you see a cow, now, forgive me if my illustration falls short, I'm a city boy. But from what I know about cows, what I've seen on Nickelodeon about cows, no, I'm just kidding, no. Um, But when a cow takes in food, takes in grass, it chews it, it chews the cud, and then it does what with it? It swallows it, Right? And then, once and once a little afternoon snack, what does it do? It regurgitates that same cud, and it chews it some more. And then, once it's done chewing, it'll swallow it. And then, once and once some more, what's it going to do? Regurgitate it and chew on it some more. Right? It sounds gross, but it's a helpful picture of of what do we mean when we're talking about uh, meditating on the Word of God. That the cow is taking in this truth, so to speak, chewing on it, and then bringing it back up and chewing on it again. He's not looking necessarily for new truths. Right. Although that's good. But he's making sure that he understands the basic truths. Right. And chewing on that basic truth there. And as believers, we want to be like the cow. We want to chew on truth, swallow it, retain it, keep it in and then also bring it back up and chew on it some more. And you know why? Because there are going to be more nutrients, so to speak, that I missed the first time. There's going to be more things that I missed the first time that I'm going to get the second time, or maybe even by God's grace, the third time, fourth time, fifth time. And so when we talk about meditation there, where we're chewing on truth in such a way to see how does this really apply to me? And how can I learn and be in awe of Christ even more and rejoice in him even more and live it out even more? So my definition of, of meditating is chewing on truth in order to richly digest it and be empowered to live it. Chewing on truth in order to richly digest it and be empowered to live it. That we want to be those, especially at Grace Bible Church, right? Berean Bible Church. I want to be those, we want to know the Bible, 
But we want to digest the Bible. Let it rest within us in such a way that it impacts us. It impacts my heart, my desires, and then I live it. Right? That's what we want as believers. And that's where life is found. As one person put it this way, is as a hammer drives a nail to the head, so meditation drives a truth to the heart. That it's through meditation that truth really gets to the bone, if you, if you will. I have people in, come up to me in counseling, and, and they share their concerns, their struggles in the Christian life, and I empathize with them. Like We're all on this walk together. But they're struggling like, Chris, I, I, I prayed, I, I, I read my Bible, and I still fell into the same sin. Like I, I, and then I, I prayed more, I, I read my Bible, and I still fell. And the one thing I'll ask people oftentimes is, you're struggling. Praise God you're struggling, by the way, because if you're grieved over your sin, that's a good sign, right? The Spirit of God is working in you. You want to do what is right. You're bringing your sin to the light. Praise God. But then I'll ask them oftentimes, is in this struggling, what truth did you choose to chew on during that time? And most of the time, they'll say, like, they don't have one answer. There's no answer. And why is that important? It's not that it's magical in that sense, but really what I'm getting at here is if God uses his word to change us, how much of that word are you chewing on so that it can change you? We know what's right and wrong, but the question is, how much is it resting and dwelling in us in such a way that we are digesting its truth? So when I know I'm going into situations or if I know I'm struggling with something, what truth am I struggling in my moments of anxiety, my moments of lust, moments of anger? What truth am I chewing on so that I can renew my mind in that moment and think about my temptation correctly and do the right thing in that moment by the power of the Spirit? Because that's what we're talking about. That's what God does to the Spirit through his word. It's when it's resting in us, when it's abiding in us, then he does his work through us so that he changes us and we do what we desire because our desires have been renewed by the Spirit. Meditation is essential for the believer. I called it a discipline, but it is not a recommendation. That meditation is, in fact, required. Thomas Watson said it this way as well, I'm quoting him a lot, but a Christian enters into meditation as a man enters into the hospital, that he may be healed. I don't know about you, but times when our souls need to be healed, as Thomas Watson says, that we enter into the hospital of meditation for healing, that I know what my soul needs. I don't need to just read it, although I need to read it so I can meditate on it, but I don't want to just read it. I need to read it so I can chew on it, and that's where my soul is at rest. Like, that's where the life is found there, is in meditation. He continues that because meditation is great spiritual value. And I love what he says here. Satan especially opposes it. The devil is an enemy of meditation. Hear that? The devil is an enemy of meditation. He knows that meditation is a means to compose the heart and to bring it into a gracious frame. And he says this. Catch this. Satan is content, Satan is fine, that you should be a hearing and praying Christian so that ye not be a meditation Christian. Satan is fine if you're a reading and praying Christian, but he's saying here that he is not content if you're a meditation Christian. He can stand your small shot of of reading and prayer, provided that you do not put in this bullet of meditation. Because in the meditation there, through the Spirit working in us, when he revives and changes us or renews us, that's when he says that gracious frame is found. So what I'm saying here, this is not like a new discipline for 2024. We're coming in 2024. This year, meditation. Next year, we're talking about something else. Like, no, it's really, if you're a believer, this is for the rest of your life now. I need to be chewing on the Word of God. This is not a new thing. This is not just today's thing. This is not just winter retreats thing. This is a Christian thing to be meditating on the word of God. And I promise you, not because my promise is so great, but I promise you because of the promises of God himself, that if you lean in to meditation, you will see drastic change in your Christian life. Because what you're essentially doing is leaning in to more of Christ. And the more you see of Christ, the more he will change you. And the more he will produce fruit in you. 
But just because the Puritans said that it was a neglected um, discipline doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? I don't want us to lean on church history, although it's helpful to see how God's been faithful to preserve truth through time. But we're not going to just lean on the Puritans to lead us spiritually. I want us to see from the word of God how this is also true, because the Puritans got some things wrong. right? They got a lot of things right, but some things they got wrong. But let's go back even further than the Puritans. So we looked at the meaning of meditation, but we're going to look at the mandate of meditation now. The mandate of meditation. Where in Scripture do we see this? Because I want to be clear, this is not an optional spiritual discipline. And also, by the way, I do understand that there are many believers who are actually practicing meditation, but maybe don't even call it that, because what they're doing essentially is they're thinking and reflecting on the Word of God. Right? If you're thinking, reflecting deeply on it, that's, that's meditation. So understand that this happens often without the title of it. The title doesn't matter, but what we're really looking at is, is the action of it, the execution of it. But I want to look at, we want to make sure putting this in the, the practice correctly. So we're going to survey a bunch of Bible passages right now, and not just to bombard you with information, but I want you to glean from God's own word how important God says it is for us not just to read the word and to hear it, but to chew, to meditate on it. I want you to go to Joshua chapter 1. Some of these passages you'll probably know. Joshua chapter 1. So I'm going to do, practice something that we did at my church growing up because we're going to a lot of passages here. When you get there, you need to say amen. All right? It's going to keep you awake as well. When I say a book and you get there, you say amen. I don't care if no one else said amen yet. You better be bold this morning, all right? Amen. Like, yeah, they, I got one person. I got, I know, one person is Joshua. Amen. All right. All right. We're going other places, so just, we're going to enact that this morning, all right? You, when you're there, amen. All right. Joshua 1.8. The book of the law, this book of the law, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall... <gasps> Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. This, this word, the Haggah, he uses for meditate. He says you meditate on it and then you will have success. He doesn't say just read this word, read the book of the law, but to meditate on it. And actually, I didn't. I didn't put in my notes, but even Deuteronomy 17, when God gives instructions for the king, we won't turn there, but he says this king here, in order to rule the land, this king needs to be reading the book of the law so that he can actually do what's in it correctly. Um, this is not just isolated here. So Joshua 1.8, you see he's, uh, this idea of, of meditating he uses, which literally means to moan, to growl, to, to roar, to utter, to, to mutter. Like this idea of like you think of like an engine just slowly... You should meditate on the word of God. Let it come into your soul and think about it more and more and more. Meditate on it. This is an internal brooding, so to speak, over something that's in the heart. Go to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. Amen. 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 So I think four people are there. Amen. Okay, we got six people there. All right, okay, we're getting there, we're getting there. So you, you get the hang of it. Psalm 1, Psalm 1, another popular one here. He used the same term here for meditate. But he says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what does he do? He meditates. And in this law, he meditates day and night. And so what's the result? He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. How blessed is that man? How happy is that man who who meditates on this law day and night? And what's going to be? You see the picture there? What's the result there? You see fruit coming forth, right? Where now he's going to yield fruit in its season. He is going to be rooted, firmly planted, why? Because he is meditating on this law. He is blessed because of it. You get another term here. We're in Psalm 1. Go to Psalm 119. Are right, you guys getting better. You're getting better. Don't be shy. Amen. 
All right. Psalm 119. Obviously, a book, this whole chapter is all about the richness of the word. Um, But look at verse 97, because we can look at so many verses here, but we're just we're surveying right now. Verse 97. The psalmist says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He uses a different word here for meditation. The idea of means of talking or speaking. So it's my, my speaking, it's my declaring, it's my pondering, it's my praying all the day. This is the careful pondering and chewing over matters of the soul here. He says, I love your law. And what, I'm sure you've heard this, but the psalmist here is saying, I love your law. And he doesn't have the full canon, the full Bible that we have before us. He's just looking at the Old Testament, not even all the Old Testament. And he's looking at that and he's saying, oh, I love your law. I meditate on this law. And why? Because it's still God breathed. Amen. It's still God's word. Amen. All right. You guys make sure you're with me. It's still God's law. And he says, I meditate on it. I ponder it all day. And what does God do in this psalmist? It enriches his soul. He says, it's sweet like honey in the honeycomb. That your word is good to my soul. If, if, I, if I didn't know your statutes, sorry, if I wasn't afflicted, I wouldn't learn your statutes. So even when he's afflicted, he realizes how much more God's word applies to him. And he's joyful for it. He's taking delight in God's word. And we have the full canon of scripture. And how much more should we have reasons to delight and to chew and to meditate on this word? That This psalmist is rejoicing in God's word. We got to keep moving, though, now. We're going to go. We're going fast. We were skipping over some stuff, but I just want to get you a good picture here. Because what I'm basically highlighting here is how these commands are not commands just to read the word. Right? These are not commands to read. Although it implies you're reading. But these are commands to meditate. These are commands for us, imperatives, and these commands are always for our good, not to be a burden. Go to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Get another word here. Got one. Amen. All right. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. This is another common passage here. This is after the passage he says, don't be anxious about anything, but by everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God, right? Then he says, the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, what I always t- tell people is that if you're struggling with anxiety, you need to first pray, as he said, right? You pray, and then what I tell people here, verse 8, is if you're struggling with anxiety, is not only just pray, like, Lord, I'm being anxious. Yes, you should pray. Make your supplications known. But also, he says here, is to ponder. In other words, to dwell, right? Because if, if you're just trying to say, I'm not going to be anxious about this one thing. I'm not going to be anxious about this one thing. I'm not going to be anxious about this. I'm not going to be anxious. Do you know what you're doing? <laughs> you're thinking about what you're being anxious. And what he does here is he puts in practice not only what you should stop thinking about, what you should put off and pray, but also what you should put on and ponder. In other words, meditate. And look what he says in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, what do you do? Dwell. You dwell on these things. So I'm going to not only just stop thinking about what I shouldn't think about, but I'm going to dwell on what is good and right. And that is meditating. I am going to dwell on what is right here. To think, I'm going to consider, I'm going to ponder. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, use the same word saying to, to, to consider, to think about how to stir one another up into good deeds. That we are to think and consider and to ponder what is good, what is right. Luke chapter 2, verse 19, um, when uh, Mary had the baby, Mary had the baby, Mary had the, the, when the Lord was born, Mary had the baby, the angels came, and the shepherds came, the angels came, the shepherds came, sorry, survey, the shepherds came. And the wise men came, all this, and she's pondering these things in her heart because she's putting these things together. The, the people who are watching around her, they're amazed, they're puzzled at what's happening. And then now he says here in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, how Mary is now pondering these things that she heard, these things that, they were, that the shepherds were told by the angels, these things that you know, these, these wise men are coming. Like You see this picture here. Mary's like, wow, she's pondering these truths that she heard on, she's heard of. But let's move forward. Go to Colossians chapter 3. If you're in Philippians, just go over one book. Colossians chapter 3. All right, see, it's faster, good. 
All right, Colossians chapter 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, we can, all, we can say it this way, since you have been raised up with Christ, he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And look what he says in verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So he says here this, this verb, so setting one's mind or setting your affections. This is, in other words, the idea of keep giving serious consideration to something. Set your affections on what is above, not below. You are to now abide, to, to, to meditate, to chew on these things. And then go over to verse 16 in the same chapter. And this is what I've repeated multiple times this weekend. Let the word of Christ dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This idea here, we're saying, now, let it dwell. Set your mind on this here. These are imperatives, again, where these are commands for us now. Set your mind, set your affections here. This is a continual, ongoing character mark of the believer to continually renew your mind on what is true. And as you do so, you renew your mind, but also then you chew on it some more and regurgitate it and chew on it some more, regurgitate it and chew on it some more. You got to set your mind there. And obviously John 15, abide. And all these things, okay, so how, how can we genuinely obey these instructions? How can you genuinely obey all of these imperatives, these commands that are given to saints in the Old Testament to the New Testament? How can you genuinely obey these commands unless you are not reading, but it implies reading, but meditating on God's truth? All right, you're with me now. The mandate is clear. Meditate on truth. Meditate on God's word. If there were, I couldn't remember, maybe there's not. Are there pull-up bars out there? I don't know why I was picturing pull-up bars out there. Anyway, pull-up bars, right? You know pull-up bars, PE, physical education, any playground. Pull-up bars. I hated them. I hated them growing up. I did like five and I stopped. But um, actually there's a condition I knew someone who knew was going into the academy for police and he literally could not do a pull-up because some sort of like composition of his body. And he literally couldn't do it. And there's like a mandate or a requirement. If you can't do a pull-up, you can't enter the academy. And somehow he got through. But anyway, I, I resonated with him because I was like, I hate pull-ups. But um, if you were to go to a pull-up bar and uh, say if you came to me or, yeah, if you came to me, I said, Chris, why are you so sore? And I said, well, you know, I was working out. I was like, oh, you're working out? Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, I'm just really sore, just you know, swole, you know, protein powder, whey. Um, not just any protein, right, whey protein, right? I don't know what's so special about the whey, but maybe it's just like all the whey protein? No. Um, so I'm really, I'm really just sore from working out. And you asked me what I did. And I said, yeah, I just did pull-ups. Like, oh, okay, so you worked upper body. Like, yeah, okay, you don't miss leg day, right? Like, no, no. Um, so I did pull-ups. How many pull-ups did you do? Well, I did 10 pull-ups. Okay, you're sore from 10 pull-ups? Like, yeah, I'm just sore. All right, you, you kind of would first probably laugh at me, rightly so. You should laugh at me because I can barely do five. But you, you'd laugh at me, like, 10 pull-ups, you're sore from doing 10 pull-ups. But then what if I had you also do 10 pull-ups, but instead of just doing 10 pull-ups, what if I had you do 10 pull-ups, and then as you were going, I had you slowly do them. I had you go, one, and then you go back slowly. Ah, now, two, and if I had you do that 10 times, would you be laughing at me that time? Probably not, unless you're like... Uh, um, Super strong. I don't know, unless you're like a Marine. But you probably wouldn't be laughing at me if I had you do 10 of those, but going really slow up and down 10 times. You probably would be sore the next day. And you know why? Because you're not just completing the action of just pull-ups, right? But what are you doing? You're really working out all of your muscles. It's really getting stretched, and you're really feeling it here. The idea, you're not just reading, right? But you are now meditating on this. It's important to read it, but to chew and to meditate. When you meditate, you feel and it impacts you in a way that is different than just a simple checklist reading. Are you with me there? Like this meditating here goes beyond that. And that's the idea of biblical meditation. Now, we got to move on to the third aspect, the method of meditation. The method of med- meditation. David Saxon, he explains how the Puritans put meditation into two categories, essentially. 
And he, the two categories he said were unplanned meditation, like occasional meditation, and the other one was planned meditation. All right? Unplanned meditation, planned meditation. The, the, the unplanned meditation, the occasional meditation, was that's kind of the extemporaneous, the, the short, the, the unplanned moments of, I'm just going to meditate on the word. And you can do this at any point in your day. This is when you are getting in the car, you're, you're driving, you're in your room, you're cleaning your room, you're doing chores around the house, you're, you're on a walk, maybe you're on a run, and then as you're doing these mundane activities that don't require a lot of headspace, a lot of thinking, you're thinking, okay, during this time I'm going to clean the kitchen, I'm just going to think on Colossians 3.2. What does it really mean to set my mind on things above? I'm just going to think about that. Set your mind on things above. Right? What is it? Okay, why does he use that even those, those words, set your mind on things above? What, what does it mean on things above? Okay, so how do I actually do that? When am I not doing it? You're just going to just ask questions. You're going to think about it. You're going to repeat it. You're going to think about different words that are used. You're just going to really just chew on it. You're going to chew on the cut. During this time, I'm going to be in the car. I'm going to just think about this one verse that I read this morning. And I'm just going to repeat it and think about it and ask questions. And I'm going to write down questions. If I have good questions, I'm going to ask someone about it if I can't find it for myself. I'm going to set this task here just to, just to meditate. Those are just moments, extemporaneous, random moments where I'm just going to now meditate. I'm going to walk to my cabin. I'm going to think on this one verse. Right? These are just unplanned moments there. They also had the moments of planned or direct meditation. This idea of, of planned direct meditation or reflexive meditation was the purpose to gain a better understanding about a teaching in Scripture or to hear a Scripture. And this is where like, they understood, they knew they were going to hear a sermon preached, or even after they heard a sermon preached. This was planned moments where they would actually schedule time just to meditate. And whether they went on a walk or whatever it was, they planned to sit there and to chew upon the word. I'm just going to spend five, ten minutes on a walk sitting here. I'm just going to just think on this word. This was planned, purposeful time where they set aside time to really just chew on the word. This could be part of their devotional time, part of their quiet time, where I'm not going to just try to read through as much as I can, but instead, maybe today, I'm just going to read through shorter amounts, and I'm just going to focus on these first two verses here and think about more what they mean. I'm going to look at the commands of this passage here, and I'm going to look at how these commands are supported. What are the reasons for the commands? What are the results of the command? I'm just going to set aside time, not just to make it through a bunch of chapters. And by the way, that's helpful sometimes, just to make it through and read through the Bible. But I'm also going to plan to just think and to meditate on this passage. It's to reflect specifically about how to apply it. And you're basically asking yourself, how does this speak to my life personally? You're asking yourself, what sin does this expose in my heart? Like in this passage, what, what sin is there? Like I, I'm not, I, I don't realize what, either, what, what sin I'm committing even by what this word says. What does it expose in me? How does this inform my belief about God and how I should live in light of it? What do I need to confess and repent of? Or even more, how does this passage enhance my praise toward God? Let me just think about more about what this says about God and his greatness. How does this passage result in me praising God more for who he is? You're thinking specifically, having specific questions of how I can respond in a way that will respond in praise, in repentance, confession, in thanksgiving, in adoration toward God. This is specific planned meditation. This is more structured in terms of time and location. For me, when I'm teaching through a passage, oftentimes where my, our church is, there's literally, I can cross the street and I'm in a cemetery. And what I like to do a lot of times is if I'm stuck or if I even just want to just think about something or if I'm thinking about an outline, whatever it is, I like to just take it and I just literally just walk across the street 20 feet and I'm in the cemetery. Let me tell you how sobering that is, is to just to walk through a cemetery. You see people's lives there. You see some of their pictures on their, on their, their tombstone. And you see some who lived only two years. You see some who lived, died when they were 14. Some who died when they were 13. Some who died when they were two months. Some who died when they were 80. Some who died when they were 100. But what you see, the constant theme is after tombstone after tombstone, is that everybody's going to die. Let me tell you how sobering that is as you think about these eternal truths and you're walking through graves here of graves of people who are now in eternity. And as you're now meditating on truth, well, I just have specific time where I'm like, I'm just going to just think about this. 
And it's sobering for that. And what we want to do is just to really take time to, to be intentional about not only what we hear and what we know, but to really chew on it. It's like a, a, a cup of tea. If you got a, cu- a cup of tea, you take a bag and you want to steep it. What's going to happen if you take that bag and just dip it two times and then take the, de- the bag out? You're going to have some weak tea, right? If you like weak tea, good for you. But I like my tea strong. So I get like two bags and then I, I, I steep it in there twice and then I dunk it in there and then I cover it so that when I look at it, it's like almost black. And that's how I like my tea, right? But, but it's, it's in there. It's steeping in there. It's stewing in there. And that's what meditation is doing, where I'm not just reading the word and walking away. I don't want to be like the man who reads it and then forgets what he looks like, right? I want to read it and let it steep in my soul and spend time in it. And that's when you see it producing in us. So it's certainly not bad. Like You want to be in arenas where you're hearing the word. You're in a Bible study. You're in church on Sunday. You're listening to sermons all the time. You want to be there, but you want to take intentional time to not just hear and take it in, but to rehearse and to chew the cud continuously. So now let's move on to the meat of meditation. The meat of meditation. It's our fourth aspect here, the meat of meditation. So we need to meditate. And so with any spiritual discipline, you need to seek the Spirit's help. You need to seek the Spirit's help. You don't ever try to, don't try to implement this in your own flesh. You just need to be honest with the Lord. Like, Lord, I need to grow in meditating. Like, I know this is true, and I'm struggling here. Lord, would you help me to be humble, to, to grow in this, that I want to feast on your word? And will not the Lord... A gracious father who is hearing his child pray that his child is praying, I want to hear more of you and chew more of your word. Would not the Lord answer that humble prayer of his child? No matter what the spiritual discipline is, whether it's reading the Bible, uh, praying, fellowship, whatever it is, believer, the Lord wants to hear the humble prayer of Lord, help me to desire to pray more. Help me to see the necessity of your word in my life. Like, pray. Ask the Lord. Help me, Lord, to really chew on your truth. I don't want to just be a hearer of your word. I want to be a doer. And in order to be a doer, I need to be meditating on it so that it works in me and through me. So ask the Lord with humility. Lord, make me yours and make me one who meditates. Now, I want to give you some, this is the meat of meditation. So in other words, like, what are you meditating on? I want to give you some really good categories, topics to meditate on. Um, and you can implement these however you want. But here's the meat of meditation. Here's some categories for you. One, the heinousness of sin. The heinousness of sin. If you had cancer, why would you go to the doctor? If you knew you had cancer, why would you not only want to go to the doctor, but continue to follow up with the doctor? It's because you knew that if you were not careful about your treatment... You could die. This is a deadly disease. You take it seriously, right? That if you knew you had a deadly disease and a deadly prognosis, you're going to do everything you can to follow up with a doctor because you realize how serious your condition is. As you meditate on the heinousness of sin, what you're seeing here is like, how is, are my sins so ugly? Like, my sin is still, it's wretched. I am renewed. I'm saved by the Lord. I'm washed in his blood. And yet, there's still sin in my life. I want to think about how ugly this sin is. What does the word say about this sin? What does it say about how God views this? So I'm just going to spend this time just thinking about the uglinessness of pride, of, of why is anger so horrid in God's eyes? I'm just going to think about this sin. I'm just going to just meditate on it. And what does God's word say about it? Because then as I realize how deadly it is and I'm being renewed by the word, I'm going to be thinking more about what God thinks about my sin and how I can be renewed and how I respond in it rightly. In the book of Haggai, um, the, God's people are rebuked because instead of responding and building the temple as they're instructed to, they're, they're indulging in selfishness and their own self-indulgence. And Haggai says multiple times to the people there, consider your ways, consider your ways, consider your ways. He's telling them, look at yourselves, consider the path that you're on. I think many times that's what we need to do is to really think about, consider my ways, like what is going on with my heart here? To consider where I'm at. What am I desiring? Like, am I thinking rightly about this? Do I understand how ugly my sin is? Yes, I'm forgiven by God. 
He has nothing but smiles upon me. I'm washed. All my sins, past, present, and future, forgiven under the blood. But because of that now, I want to think about my sin and how much I can cleanse and, and, and throw off my sin. And the only way we can do that is to think and meditate on it in a way that how God thinks about it so I can put it off rightly. I want to think about the foolish effects of sin and its, its consequences. Think of Proverbs chapter 5 through 7. If you're struggling with lust, read chapter 5, verse through 7 of Proverbs, and you see just multiple instructions about a foolish, naive man and how this, this foolish man, I think it's chapter 7, he eventually is coming to lust, and it says here he's like an ox going to the slaughter. You're just seeing just the, the dangerous effects of sin, the consequences thereof. That's important to read. That as you see how dangerous sin is, as, you, as you're more renewing your mind about what God thinks about this sin, the uglier your own sin will be and the more your zeal will be to throw it off and to chew on what is right. Have you ever tried to attempt an MMA fighter with a Twinkie? Like, good, good luck with that. Like, because his body's in shape. He's not, he doesn't want to eat a Twinkie because he knows that, first of all, it's not really real food, right? It can survive a nuclear <laughs> bomb. Like, Twinkies aren't real. So you can't tempt an MMA fighter with junk food. Like, he knows what it is, and he's not going to touch it. And that's what we want to do with our sin. I want to be so informed. I want to think, what does the word say about my sin? And so when I'm tempted, I want to think rightly about it. Like, oh, no, 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 no. This is bitter as wormwood. Like, I'm not touching that. I'm not going there. Even more, what you can think about, God's nature, his attributes. Meditate on God's nature, his attributes, the, the righteousness of Christ, just contemplating on Christ lived a righteous life in all areas, never sinning against God once in his, in his speech, in his actions, in his thoughts. He lived a righteous life. Meditating, as one person put it this way, is Edmund Clowney, that to meditate with genuine reflection on the glory of God's name means to take up the task of praise. That as you think about God's nature, his attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, his mercy, his compassion, his love, as you think more about who he is, it is designed to stir up in you praise. So that as you meditate on who God is, the ultimate result will be for you to praise this God whom you are meditating on. And that when you also, someone put it this way, when you also consider that God is free in all his gifts to you, who are unworthy of the least of them, if you would just dwell upon these and such like thoughts, they would excite in you holy rapture and admiration, causing you to break out in praises. That if you would focus and think about God's goodness, his attributes, his glory, you name it, the more you think about this, it would incite in you a holy rapture of admiration, and you would have a character developing just a nurturing character of praise toward him. What else can you think about? What, what else can you meditate on? The promises of God. This is the promises of God. You think about what does he promise to his people, his character, who he is, and how that applies to me and my life. Just meditate on God's promises. I'm going to give you a personal example of this. That what, even in times of just distress or trouble, just how important it is for you to meditate on God's promises. There was a time now, oh man, this was a, over a year ago, a year and a few months ago. My youngest, Judah, who's two now, um, he was born with a urological condition that needed to be corrected with surgery. And we found out about this early on, and we knew he needed surgery. And so we had to drive from Oro Grande to Children's Hospital, L.A. So a three-hour drive almost, and we had to see a surgeon, and sure enough, he had to confirm the surgery, that they could do the surgery. But at that time, when he was going to have the surgery done, well, when they told me he needed surgery, he was six months, four months old. So a four-month-old baby, six-month-old baby, right? This is a baby here. And I heard he needed surgery. And then they were going to schedule it for when he was eight months old. And hearing that, as a father... Seeing your little eight-month-old who can't even talk, can't reason, doesn't even know what he's going into, is needing surgery, do you know what that did to my soul? It broke it. And the closer we got to the surgery date, the more I started thinking, like, they're going to put him under complete. They're going to put the gas on him. He's going to go completely under, and they're going to work on him, and I'm going to be in another place in the hospital, and I don't know what's going to happen to him. And I started thinking more as the surgery went closer. Like, what if he doesn't wake up? What if there's a problem? 
What if they don't realize this anesthesia they use isn't right? What, what if, it's all the what ifs, right? Speaking of anxiety, right? <laughs> Who needs to hear that? Right? Like all these what ifs, I started getting anxious. And you know what the Lord so graciously did to me a few days leading up to it? Go to Isaiah chapter 41. <laughs> All right, y'all, good job. You didn't forget Isaiah 41. Just crack open the middle of your Bible. And if you, and if you hit Psalms and Proverbs, keep going. Isaiah chapter 41. Oh, wait, I'm not even there. Amen. Now, this is God giving encouragement to Israel, to God's people. And this speaks of the character of God, who he is. And I... I think I was reminded of this, which is funny, right? This is how the Lord works. Is I was giving, I was giving this same instruction to someone else who was struggling with anxiety like a while back. <laughs> and then I just, it came to my mind, this passage, and I went to it myself. Isaiah 41, verse 10. And the Lord says to Israel, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you know what I needed those few days before Judah's surgery? This verse. Because what the Lord did is I just read this and I started thinking about it and I was meditating on it. And I was thinking here, it says, he says, do not fear. And then he says, do not anxiously look about you. And I'm thinking like, yes, that's what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm trying to look for like what's going to happen. And I'm fearing here. Do not, I'm looking about me. But he's reminding me I don't need to fear. I don't need to look for other people, other things to give me solace. I need to look toward God, right, to look at him. He says, for I am your God. This is God encouraging his people. Don't fear. Don't look around you. Why? I am your God. If I am your God, what do you need to fear? Like, why are you anxious, Chris? Why are you fearing? Who's your God? I'm your God. Do you know how great I am? Then he says here, I will strengthen you. Oh, I needed to be strengthened in that moment. He says, surely I will help you. And then I begin to think about it. Look, he says, surely twice. He says, surely I will help you. And then surely I will uphold you. In other words, here, God is giving no room for doubt here, Chris. Surely I will help you, Chris. Surely I will uphold you. Do you know how much I needed to be upheld in that moment there? I was alone in my office, no one around, and it was just me and the Lord, and I was chewing on his word. I needed to be reminded, surely he's going to help me. He will uphold me. He's not promised me a clean surgery. He's not promising me that Judah will wake up, but at the end of the day, I know he is God. He's going to uphold me. He's going to strengthen me. Why do I need to fear? He is God. And, I, and all of this, this is no commentary. I'm not looking at a commentary. I'm not looking at a lexicon. I'm not looking at a Bible dictionary. I'm just me in the word right here, just meditating on this truth. I'm just making observations. He's making, he's saying surely twice. He is reaffirming what I don't need to do twice. You see, I'm just looking at these observations here. I'm just chewing on it. And it's just me in the word and the spirit of God. He says he's going to uphold me. And here, this verse was a balm to my soul in that moment because I didn't just read it, but I chewed on it because, let me tell you, I was hungry and I needed it. And so to to chew on the promises of God is how we need to know who God is, no matter where you find yourself, no matter where he brings you, so that he can use his word to glorify himself. And he will give you peace that surpasses all understanding. And that's how you learn the truth of God's word. That's what it means, right? That's what God does. Like he takes you through the school of pain and suffering so that you can come out and see, that's how I can understand how I can have peace. That makes no sense. That's how I can have joy because my joy is in him. That's why I can have comfort because he alone comforts me. Like that's what God does through this. And you only learn that when he works his word in your soul. So read the Psalms if you need help for promises of God. Other things that speak to God's promises, that whatever your need is, you run to his word. Other things you can, you can chew on, the, his workings in providence. Psalm 63, we won't look at for the sake of time, but go ahead and read if you, if you want later on. But Psalm 63, verse 6 and 7, it, this is David speaking how he reflects upon the Lord's providences at night. This is David here. He's probably alone, fleeing from likely maybe Absalom or some or Saul. We don't know exactly what, but David here is in distress. And he says here, like, through the night watches, I think of your doings. I think of your work. 
And so he's just meditating on what God has done in his life. That you can meditate, how has God been faithful in my life? How has God shown himself to be good? Let me just think about God's doings in the work, in, in, in the world, in my life. And people are like, how has he been faithful? Let me just meditate on that. That's what he's doing. By the way, if you have trouble sleeping, like instead of just trying to just count sheep, if you have trouble sleeping, just meditate on his truth. Think about God and what he's done. Right? If David did it, hey, I'm going to do it. And meditate on him. Meditate also on the certainty of death and eternity. Realizing here, like, death is, it's, it's imminent, essentially, for all of us, unless the Lord comes, which would be far greater. But Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2 says it, it's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of rejoicing. Because it really sobers us. Like I told you, walking through the cemetery, that's sobering. And so Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, it's better to be in a house of mourning than rejoicing. Because it's in that house of mourning that I realize what really matters in life. So meditate even on the certainty of death, the certainty of eternity. Even meditate on the reality of hell. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, when Paul is saying here, like he, he's recounting God's grace and mercy and saving him because he realized he was worthy of hell, and yet God plucked him out. And as I mentioned yesterday, even meditate on your own passage that you read in your quiet time. What is one truth you can take from me that you read this morning or that you read tomorrow morning? What is one truth to meditate on that day? So these are just plenty of topics just to meditate on. You, you meditate on the word, his character, all these things. There's plenty of resources for us to meditate. Because the issue is not only getting us to find a time to read my Bible and to pray, but to sink in the pool of God's treasure and drink until we've had our fill. Your fulfillment is found at the fountain of meditation. That's where you'll be filled, at the fountain of meditation. William Bates said this, that the great reason why our prayers are ineffectual it's because we do not meditate before them. So when you think about growing in godliness, this discipline is absolutely vital. I want you to think about for yourself, how can you implement this, this discipline? And knowing this discipline is not a recommendation. It's not a suggestion. It really is an imperative. But think about it, this is an imperative, a command that is for your good and for your growth. How can I meditate on the word more? And let me ask the Lord's help for me to pursue this. Because what we need at the end of the day, every single day of our lives, the longer you walk with Christ, the more you realize I need more truth because I'm so prone to believing lies. And if you believe lies that will work out in your life and what you think, what you hope for, what you speak, what you live. It's going to work itself out in many ways. But the more you walk with Christ, the more you realize you need truth and more truth and to meditate on truth and to meditate on more truth. I need to be renewed. I need to be and sitting under the fountain of meditation so that I can be filled. So pursue this by God's grace and see what he does in his children. All right, let's pray. Father, we, we do thank you for your word, your sufficient word for us. And God, we again confess our, our, our neediness towards you. We need you. We need to rely upon you. And we can't do this without your help. So we are so thankful, Lord, as you told your disciples, that you did not leave us without a comforter. We have your abiding spirit within us. And God, we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, by that spirit that you would work and grow in us to be those who hunger for righteousness, hunger for truth. And I pray you would bless them in that, that they would pursue you and they would pursue your face. This is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.